Hello, welcome to the Girl and Duck podcast. I'm Jen Storer, acclaimed children's book author and chief inspirationalist, that's not a term I made up, at girlandduck.com, creative writing, creative life. At Girl and Duck, I take you on a journey from exploring the art of kidlit creation right through to mastering the art of kidlit creation. To find out more about the courses and products that I offer, pop over to the website. You're bound to find inspiration and support and something to absolutely love over there. That's www.girlandduck.com. But in the meantime, stick around because we've got lots to talk about. So I'd like to begin with an, an acknowledgement of country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands from which I'm speaking to you today, which is the Jaja Warren people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Jen Campbell, we're very, very excited to have you here today. Thank you for doing this interview. I'm, I'm very excited to, to be here. Thank <laughs> you. I'm going to start just by... by reading a truncated version of your amazing bio because you are, I don't know, a powerhouse. You're just involved in everything. Uh, but I'll read that and then we'll, then we'll jump into the interview, okay? Okay, so Jen Campbell is an award-winning poet and short story writer. Her picture books, Franklin's Flying Bookshop, Franklin and Luna Go to the Moon, and Franklin and Luna and the Book of Fairy Tales are illustrated by Katie Harnett and published by Thames Hudson. Jen is also the author of the Sunday Times best-selling Weird Things Customers Say in Bookshops series and the Bookshop Book. Jen worked as a bookseller for 10 years and now runs a YouTube channel where she talks about books the history of fairy tales, and the representation of disability and disfigurement. Jen also runs a podcast, runs online writing workshops, offers editorial services, and gives talks at universities, schools, and book festivals on a variety of topics. Jen grew up in the northeast of England and now lives in London. She's represented by Charlie Campbell at CCLA. Jen Campbell, welcome to Girl and Duck. Thank you. <laughs> now, it is fairy tale month in, in the duck pond, so I'm just going to jump straight in and we'll start talking about fairy tales to kick off and then we'll weave our way into your poetry and your picture books and, of course, your new book that's coming out in October. I can't wait to talk about that. So, so, Jen, in terms of fairy tales, I'm just going to ask you the, the most basic question to kick off. Where did your interest first uh, come about with fairy tales? It's really hard to pinpoint because I think fairy tales are so much a part of our social just fabric, right, that we grow up with them. They're in, they're in everything. Like specific fairy tales um, obviously appear in Disney, which is how I think most people, especially of my generation, grew up with fairy tales. Um, but you can find folklore elements in lots of different parts of society, which is, I'm sure something we'll talk about later. But um, So I grew up, I think the first Disney film that I saw in the cinema was The Little Mermaid, so that's probably the one I remember the most. But I wasn't hugely drawn to the happily ever after, you know, twee, 
fairy tales. I love the songs, still love the songs. I'll still sing them, but Disney was not something that I think I obsessed over in, in, in the same way that other people really do. And it wasn't until I think I read um, Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes, and I can't remember how old I was then, and I saw or was introduced to what you could do with fairy tales. And that was when I found it interesting. Basically, when I found out that I could get involved myself, I was suddenly <laughs> interested. I'm like, oh, you're allowed to change these things. You're allowed to play with them. And in his revolting rhymes, there are a couple of stories where Red Riding Hood plays a part. But my favorite bit is where she gets involved in the fairy tale of the three little pigs. So we have this merging of two tales. And um, pigs call her up because they're really stressed out because of the wolf at their door. And she says, oh, my darling pig, I I'll be right there, but I'm just drying my hair. So she takes her time and then she goes along and she sees the wolf and almost in this bored fashion, she whips a pistol from her knickers after her <laughs> eyelid gives a flicker. And then she shoots the wolf and she turns him into a, you know, a beautiful coat. And then she goes a bit too far and she shoots the pig and that becomes her suitcase and it gets really dark and twisted. But I was just like, oh my goodness, this is really interesting. There doesn't have to be a, a really clear good and bad guy. There doesn't have to be this moral at the end because everyone in that fairy tale is uh, not a great person. And that's when I started to find it really interesting. <laughs> So, yeah. so then, so you really are an expert on fairy tales. I just, uh, your YouTube videos are amazing. Your knowledge is, is vast. Have you formally studied fairy tales or is this just all come about by your own reading or? No, it is a labour of love. Um, I did do English literature um, as, as an MA at uni and um, for my dissertation at the end, this is not a fairy tale related, but I feel like it kind of taps oh. into it a little bit. My uh, dissertation I decided to do was on the history of growing up as a sin in children's literature, which I remember my dissertation advisor being quite miffed about. He's like, can't you just write about Charles Dickens? I was like, no, I want to write about Peter Pan. <laughs> so I wrote about Peter Pan. And Peter Pan is not a fairy tale because there's arguments over, you know, what makes a fairy tale. But Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan are isolated novels that have been crafted. They may contain folklore elements but they're very much their own stories. They're not repeated stories from time gone by. Um, but yeah, the, that idea of studying, really getting to grips with a story like Peter Pan, which as I said, has folklore elements, I think really encouraged me to think more about children's storytelling and what stories are for children and what stories aren't for children. And the messaging within those books that is there to reach the adults too. Um, so I haven't studied fairy tales formally. It's something that I've researched a lot and written a lot about um, and go around talking about as my pet subject. Yeah. And talking about it beautifully as well. Um, so so what you said there about, um, about fairy tales and their intended audience. So I just mm. wanted to pick up on that because you know, we've got this sanitised version of fairy tales that's been fed, fed to us for decades from Disney and a lot of people don't know the gruesome, dark side to original fairy tales. So who was their intended audience, one, and what, what do you think their, their messaging was all about, if anything? It's hard to know for sure because even the recorded versions of fairy tales that we have are the ones that were written down and that is a really diluted pool of the fairy tales were actually being 
spoken because they were written down primarily by white men. You know, the, the, the way that women were then written about within those stories wasn't probably very reflective of the way they were being talked about in fairy tales when women were telling them, for instance. Um, so they go back at centuries, millennia, really. Some of them you can trace back to Greek myths and they have, you know, origins there. Um, but Primarily, I think they were really for everybody. I think I think that that was the point is that they they weren't for anyone of a particular class. They weren't for anyone of a particular well, certain tales I'm sure were for people of a particular gender. But on the whole, the the form itself was supposed to be for everyone because it was told by a word of mouth. So you didn't have to be able to write in order to tell them. But the very gruesome ones, sure, I'm sure, I'm sure were more for the adults. But I also think kids love the gruesome stuff. And again, we'll talk about that, that later. But I think we've uh, forgotten how much children like disgusting things. And I, I love that. But if we're going to talk about not the gore, but the sexual parts of fairy tales, because that's a huge part of them, those were definitely for the adults. Uh, and for instance, uh, Charles Perrault wrote, a version of Little Red Riding Hood, one of the first versions of Little Red Riding Hood in the 1700s um, for, for the King of France at one of his debauched parties. And it was supposed to be really saucy, you know? It was um, about a girl who, well, we know the tale of Red Riding Hood, but this version is a girl who meets a wolf in the forest. The wolf then goes to the grandma's house, eats the grandmother, pretends to be the grandmother. And when Red Riding Hood gets there, he says to her, I'll come into bed with me. So she takes off all of her clothes and she gets into his bed and then he devours her. And that's the end. Like there's no woodcutter coming on to cut them out. There's nothing. She's just dead. Um, and the term for losing your virginity at the time was to have seen the wolf. So it was understanded that this, it, it was very understandable for the people listening to the tale that this is about a young girl who was who was sleeping with someone she didn't know. And indeed, I think even before that, he'd written a version of Red Riding Hood where she did a strip tease. So those kinds of fairy tales <laughs> were not for the children. But then as we move further through the centuries, it was the Grimm's really who made um, the fairy tales more for children. And that was something that happened during the Victorian times when we look at, at storytelling. They first published their collection of tales in two volumes in 1812 and 1815. And those were very gruesome, very violent. And then throughout the next few decades up until the late 40s they published different revised editions of the tales where they made them more sanitary and also and I'm going to use all the air quotes what they considered to be more Christian um, which is very subjective and also in some respects slightly hilarious so it was it was the Grimm's who changed a lot of fairy tales where mothers were cruel into stepmothers being cruel because they thought that was a more you know, pious way of looking at things, you know, don't want to be horrible about marriage and mothers, but stepmothers, sure, that's fine. <laughs> um, and that comes with a whole host of problems. But it, it was them who really started thinking about moving it towards the direct the direction of children. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, so, you have a video, you have many videos videos on there, and the ones that I speak about in this interview I will definitely link at the bottom. 
but you do have a video that talks about science fairy tales and freak shows, which is absolutely mm. fascinating. So you talk in that video about the influence of science and evolution on fairy tales and, and what became of children's um, literature during the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, which is quite it's just quite amazing. So will you walk us through that, <laughs> that time in history, please? <laughs> really just... interesting, if you say. And it's hard to kind of work out how seriously people took this, you know, because I think some of the, of what happened was writers desperately trying to stay relevant, you know, but they were like, okay, science is cool. I should write about science. Is that one uh, thing you talked about, that, that, that book or, or that I, that, that woman wrote about the fairies' wings using them to calculate something. Yeah, so there was I mean, a that book was in 1887. I know, in 1887, a book called The Fairyland of Chemistry, which is by Lucy Ryder Mayer. And as you say, she had fairies symbolizing um, chemical or chemicals and chemical compounds, and you could count the number of um, atoms based on the, how many wings they had. Um, and uh, I, I'm sure that that one, I'm, oh, I'm not actually sure, but I'm guessing that that one's more ironic, but there was uh, a theory of something called fairyology, which was the study of fairy tales. And if you look at the history of entomology, which is the study of insects, you know, you see all those um, illustrations of insects and all their body parts are labelled. On some entomologist boards, there would be fairies. You know, like that this was an insect that we hadn't found yet. And again, I'm not sure how seriously this was taken, but you can see why that would be the case because we're talking about, I mean, we're talking about a large period of history here, the 1700s, the 1800s, very early 1900s. So I'm jumping all over the place, but if we think about the discovery of dinosaur bones, for instance, and paleontology and Mary Anning, when dinosaur bones were first discovered, people thought that maybe they were the bones of, of, of dragons, you know, that, that they were dragons or they were giants. Um, they were trying to link factual things to, to stories as a way to understand things. That's how folklore works. That's why we have origin stories, you know, how is the leopard get its spots? Let's think of the story for that. You're suddenly given evidence of dragons, but okay, let's make a story surrounding that. And as time progressed, they realized that obviously they, they, they weren't dragons, so some people desperately still wish that they were. I'm probably one of those. I would love them to be dragons. That would, that would be great. Um, so if we're thinking about stuff like that, trying to get terms with evolution and believing in science-based things that we can't see, it makes sense that you would try and pair that with some kind of storytelling and that maybe mythical creatures would get involved. A particular um, nugget of information that I love is, is when scientists started thinking about germs um, and what we couldn't see and how those were bad, and that maybe fairies were the antidote for that because fairies were things we also couldn't see. So if we have germs and they are bad, maybe we can have fairies who can clean them up for us. And in folklore history, there is, that is something that fairies and elves do, right? In stories, they come out at night, they tidy or they make things as a way to help us explain it when we've misplaced our keys. Oh, the fairies must have taken them, not I lost them. The fairies must have taken them. So um, marketing people and companies put behind this and they invented something called fairy soap. 
um, as, as a means to get rid of germs in your home, and that has lingered. And I don't know if this is something that you, that you have in Australia, but we, we here have fairy washing up liquid, which is a kind of... For some reason, so, I'm familiar with it. I don't know whether they used it on Coronation Street or something like that. Jen, he yeah. was he was the fellow that the um, the greatest showman was based on, wasn't he? So yeah, he was not a nice guy. Let's just get spoiler that, that guy. Exactly. <laughs> no, he definitely was a lovely guy. I think. Yeah, Pete Barnum, not a great, not a great guy. Not someone I would recommend taking life advice from. They, they um, kind of Disneyfied him, I think, for that film. By the sounds of it, they did, and it was a shame because they yeah. really could have given yeah. characters uh, with disfigurements and disabilities agency and could have told their story. But um, yeah, he uh, exploited people and, and put them on show. And one of the the tricks or the inverted commas that he would do, and other people who ran free shows would do, would be to present people with um, disfigurements and disabilities and say they were proof of evolution because they were half animal and and half human. So Madam Howard was someone who had a huge mane of hair and they said that you know she was part lion and they would come up with all of these stories as, as supposed scientific proof for the way that they were so any one born with extradactyly which happens to be the medical condition that I have which is why you're missing fingers the reason said for that was because when that child was in the womb their mother must have eaten shellfish so I mean in one sense it's really interesting and in one sense it's really exploitative but um I, that was a case of, of people taking that storytelling element and, and trying to use it or definitely using it for their own gain um, and manipulating people's perception of, of reality and humanity, um, which was very prevalent at that time. I mean, going back to the 1700s for a second, Samuel Johnson in his first version of the dictionary had an entry for dragons which said creatures that are possibly imaginary. <laughs> So people really disbelieve in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all these things, they just stick with us. They're in our DNA, aren't they? I mean, this is centuries on and you can still see mm. this this filtering through into society and culture. And yeah, it's extraordinary. Absolutely. So so um so science and all this the fairy tales and all this sort of stuff sort of meshed up and then we we ended up with freak shows and circuses and and so this this now leads me I'm going to jump here I've got so many questions here but it does lead me into wanting to talk to you about diversity and representation and particularly that link between villainy and disfigurement because it's such a deeply deeply ingrained trope that and especially for children's authors uh, I think it's really really 
important for us to start dismantling that, really looking at it closely, looking how it's working. We're, so many of us are guilty of it. I myself am guilty. I look back on my body of work and think, okay, <laughs> you could have been a bit more sensitive back then uh, because it is this sort of linking disfigurement with, villi- with villains is just so, you know, you talk about James Bond, but that's just one example out of a gazillion um, so, yeah, can you talk to us about that, please? Sure. Um, I think if we start with fairy tales, um, there are two discussions to be had, I think. There, there's the, the villainy, the figment stuff, and then there's the, I was going to say slightly more subtle, it's not subtle, but in fairy tales where, where good people, we air quotes again, good people are beautiful and bad people are ugly, um, which I would say is an extension of how society views um, disfigurement and disability. That that's the extreme of it. It's just here is a simplified version of of splitting people into two separate, you know, piles of people. <laughs> piles of people. Um, and often in fairy tales, people will be punished if they've done something bad in a bodily way. So their bodies will be changed, um, and that does reflect. Uh, Christian teaching about sin and how sin can be shown on the body maybe you're carrying the sins of your parents and all of that stuff that we don't necessarily I would hope really believe in anymore but still as you say that lingers as this trope and something that we understand as a society something we would like to think we've gotten rid of but haven't really and in something like Beauty and the Beast for instance and for anyone who's listening um, Penguin Classics they brought out a collection of animal bride and bridegroom stories from over the centuries, which is really interesting if you happen to be interested in that kind of stuff. Um, but Beating the Beast is the most famous one, I, I would argue, out of all of them. And in that, the the Beast, who doesn't have a name, um, I remember in Disney they quickly called him Adam afterwards because they realised they hadn't given him a name. Oh, quickly give him a name, Adam, okay. Um, yeah, he was turned into a beast because he rejected the advances of, of a fairy who really liked him. That's not the Disney version, but in the, the original version. So he was turned into this 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 um, beast, and he was told that if someone loved him, then he could turn back into a beautiful man again. Uh, and in short, condensing it down, yes, that's what happened. Like Belle ends up falling in love with him, and, and then he is... Uh, turned back into a human but the story of Beauty and the Beast is thought to have been inspired by a real life person called Petra Gonzalez who had hypertrichosis and was born in the 1500s that's where you have hair covering like thick hair covering all of your body um, and he was married off as a, as a court joke to um, someone that the queen didn't like um, but then he lived very happily um, with his wife Catherine and they had I think seven children together so this was a well known Story, like real life story that people knew and it's thought to be the inspiration for beating the beast but of course you're not born because you're like with a disability because you've done something wrong and you don't lose that disability if you are a really good person so that's how fairy tales obviously twist the truth and it's a literary tradition and trope that is still clumsy so dearly and as you said I, I often reference James Bond which is just one example but the reason that I think it's such a crucial example is because it is a baffling um, a baffling instance of an industry really clinging to something even though it's been pointed out to them time and time again it should be retired please but the producers love it um, 
so there are interviews with two producers um, being asked, you know, why do most of the James Bond villains have disfigurements and disabilities? And this is a, a rough quote that, that they said that James Bond lives in a heightened version of reality where these things are accepted. It's not supposed to be political, but it's a version of the world where we feel really comfortable. And I find that really interesting because it's where a, a certain type of person feels really comfortable. Yes. I don't feel really comfortable watching that. <laughs> I feel very uncomfortable. And there is a new James Bond coming out this autumn, and I think two villains um, with the statements in this time because I think Blofeld's still in it. Um, and then there is a, a new villain in it as well who has a facial disfigurement. Um, and it's just that <sighs> real pushback against seeing or wanting to see real life consequences of media like that and how it affects the people watching yes. and reading. And as you said, I think it's really important, especially for children's books and films. Um, so in The Witches by Roald Dahl, in, in that book, the witches have no hair, they have no toes, they have, in the book, I think it just says strange hands, I think long fingers, um, and it's a very anti-Semitic book, Roald Dahl was very anti-Semitic, and it was supposed to be against Orthodox Jewish women, that book, um, which is obviously terrible for a whole separate reason, um, but focusing on the disfigurement part there was a new version of that of that film that came out last year with Anne Hathaway and they changed it even more and they gave the witches extradactily and I started getting all of these messages from people saying Janice you seen <laughs> and, and I, I couldn't I couldn't really believe it I just thought okay you've added more disfigurement to the bad guys um, and I have alopecia myself so I wear fabulous wigs now I very much enjoy wearing them and um, so I, I, I'm missing most of my hair. I have exactly, um, I have exactly on my feet too. And I thought, I am the, I am the witch here. <laughs> I, am, I am the witch. And for any kids out there who have the condition that I have, I was just thinking what school would be like with that film coming out again, especially because Warner Brothers took it off screen something that they later actually apologized for. And as part of their marketing campaign, they had a video uh, about witch hunting and they were encouraging children to hunt for witches looking for women in their life who didn't have hair who had missing fingers who wore gloves all the time and it was so tasteless <laughs> it was just one step too far taking it off screen obviously there are lots of women out there who have alopecia there are lots of women going through cancer treatment I mean maybe let's not encourage a literal witch hunt of disabled people and sick people that would be great <laughs> um, so yeah it's not cool, and we should probably not think cool. about it. It's not cool. It's not cool. It's not cool. In summary, Jen says, not cool. <laughs> <laughs> not cool. The, yeah, so, the, um, no, go on, no, go on, no, go on. No, go on. No, I'm just, uh, it's just, it's just, um, could you talk to us a little bit about the incident, I think, with um, Kerry Burnell on, um, mm. on CBBS? Because a lot of Australians may not know about, that that went down, you know, because it was a, quite a UK-based thing. But this was back in 2009. But I think this is a yeah. fantastic example of this sort of thing playing out in real life, you know, like what happened in the bookshop, the conversations that you were privy to. <laughs> air quotes are coming out a lot mm. today. Yeah, I know, we're all doing air quotes. Everyone who's <laughs> just listening, just that everything we're saying in an air quote. Um, whole interview is air quotes, yeah. <laughs> um, I think sometimes I, I, um, 
I think most, actually most disabled people can say that privy to these conversations, but I think maybe I see a few more than, than others because I have the privilege, I think, of, of passing a lot of the time that a, a lot of people don't see me as disabled because, you know, I wear a wig. If you don't, I mean, but, I mean, it looks like I definitely dyed my hair, but you could be forgiven for thinking this was my hair. Um, and if, my, if I'm not talking with my hands a lot, for instance, you might not see them. So I, I think sometimes people will say things in front of me because they think I'm one of them. You know, like non-disabled people will think, oh, well, she, she's, she's one of us. It's fine. We can say whatever we like. Um, and that used to happen sometimes in the bookshop that I worked at. So I worked at the bookseller for 10 years. And I loved it. It was great. Um, and the first bookshop that I worked at was the Edinburgh Bookshop, which was then called the Children's Bookshop. So it was primarily children's um, books, and, and, and mothers primarily would come in after school. You know, they would, they would come, bring their kids, we would do story time. And in 2009, as you said, Kerry Bernal was um, hired. She got a job working for CPDs. And Kerry Bernal um, has one arm, um, and the parents were discussing this while we were having story time and saying how not okay it was, how they were annoyed because they were going to have to have a conversation with their children about difference they didn't want to have to have because they thought their children were too young to be having this conversation and um, and that she was really going to scare kids and that that wasn't okay. And then they, they came over to me and they're like, hey, what do you think about this? And I thought it was hilarious. I'm like, okay, you're asking the bookseller with the limb difference well, I think you being really horrible about the TV presenter with the limb difference. And I said, well, you know, I have a limb difference too. And they were like, oh, yeah, because they've just forgotten. Because by that point, they were so used to me. You know, it's like, oh, well, I don't mind you. But, you know, people that I don't know, there's a whole other thing. Um, and it, it was frustrating because there were, you know, not a massive, massive number of complaints, but, but several thousand complaints to CBBS about this. And it was non-disabled people thinking that their comfort was more important than representation for not just their own kids and you know them growing up and empathy and all of that but for disabled kids out there if you say that talking about disability is a, a subject kids should have when they're older you're erasing the fact that there are disabled children out there and also kids who have disabled parents you know it's a very real lived experience for lots of people um, and therefore we need to represent that. And it's a loop. If we don't have that representation, then ignorance turns into shame and embarrassment, and then you, it grows up into feeling really uncomfortable and not wanting to have those conversations. So the earlier we can have those conversations, the better it is for everybody, really. Yeah, it is, yeah. The thing about, too, little children are generally speaking more accepting of these things. They will ask confronting questions, but I feel that children ask questions just to understand, not to judge. Mm, you know, absolutely. They, they they, just, they they, what happened to you? What What's that? And then, you know, do you want a bite of my ice cream? Like they just, they understand, they put it in context and then they quickly move on to the next thing. I agree. And there is a great book out there by James Catchpole, which came out this year. Time means nothing anymore. This year, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to you and it's a picture book uh james wrote it he himself has one leg and about a young boy called joe who goes to the playground and he just wants to play but everyone keeps asking him what happened to you and he doesn't want to answer the question um because it's not relevant he's like pretending to be a pirate 
you know, imagining there are sharks. It's much more interesting than having that conversation. And the book is about acknowledging children's curiosity, but teaching children that they don't really, and adults, they don't really need to know the answer to that question in order to be friends with someone. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, the way that I see it is, uh, as you said, like for children, I kind of have a different way of thinking about it. I will be definitely more willing to answer children's questions because, as you said, they're really curious. And generally with kids, for me, they want to know if it hurts because they're mm-hmm. worried about me. And if I say, well, uh, yes, but I take medication, they're like, oh, cool. And then they'll start telling me about what they ate for lunch, you know, like then we move on very quickly. But for adults who feel the need to ask that, it's... I would just say to adults, when you ask a disabled person, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you in a wheelchair? Why do you have missing fingers? You may be asking someone to relive a really traumatic, traumatic. experience in their life. And, and why should someone do that? Business. Exactly. It's not your business. And it doesn't matter. The only time that someone needs to know, I think, um, is for access-based reasons, you know. But even then, that's not why you're a wheelchair user it's, are you a wheelchair user mm. what access needs to have how can we facilitate you as opposed to tell me all of the you know gory details story. about your medical history it's, it's not necessary it's, no. it's, yeah yeah no uh, okay um i just want to go into what how are we going for time what are we Seven twenty-eight. good um p- the picture books so I want to start at the beginning. So, so the picture books, the Franklin series, it, was that a dream of yours to write picture books? First, I just want to go back to that sort of basic questions. Did you have a long-held dream to do this or how did it all come about? So my first books that I wrote were actually non-fiction books and they were about books at length. Um, and uh, that was really fun to do and not something that I'd ever, as you said, like dreamed about doing. I hadn't thought that that would be the first book that I wrote. It just happened to be that way. I wrote some humour books about weird things that people say in bookshops. And then I wrote a non-fiction book about weird and wonderful bookshops around the world. And I was particularly interested and still am interested in travelling bookshops, bookshops on boats and on buses. I love that. And then I thought, well, what if you had a magical travelling bookshop? What if it was on its dragon <laughs> so yeah so it's kind of it it seeps into that um and I, I my agent gets very frustrated with me because he's like Jen could you just write for one audience I would it's so much easier to market if you just write I was actually going to ask you that yeah because most agents yeah. like to to funnel you yeah 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 they do and he's given up on that now but I whatever do, do what you like so I've always wanted to write for lots of different people and I first started writing poetry and short stories for adults which I still do then did non-fiction and then applied the poetry to children's writing and I think that's a combination of always loving poetry folklore fairy tales and combining that with my love of book selling because my favorite part of being a bookseller was talking to kids um, and putting books into their hands that was by far the best I remember once a young girl said to me she pointed to one of the bookshelves and she said Jen can I get to Narnia through there and I said oh um I'm really sorry Imogen it doesn't work for getting to Narnia 
And she sighed and she looked really wise, even though she was about five. And she said, that's okay. Our wardrobe at home doesn't work for getting to Narnia either. Dad said it's um, bought it at Ikea. I was going to say, said, Ikea. That, that Ikea are deliberately making non-magical furniture to destroy children's dreams. <laughs> I just loved it. So um, I had left book selling in, oh, I don't even remember, 2016? I think it was just before Franklin came out in 2017 and and I wanted to keep that part of book selling you know I get to do not in current times because pandemic but in normal times writing kids books means I still get to go and do story times in, in bookshops and keep all the fun bits it's like being someone's auntie you know you do all the fun things and then you leave so yeah I, then I decided I wanted to write a kids book and and Franklin came into being which is a picture book about a book loving dragon and contains themes of empathy and not judging people based mm. on the way they look because the villagers are all scared of him until he meets the young girl called Luna who's not scared of Franklin because she's read all about dragons in books and together they build a bookshop on Franklin's back and take their love of books to the local villagers it was really fun to do I enjoyed it mm, it's beautiful it's beautiful did you work very closely with Katie or was that something that was just negotiated by the publishers and sort of I find that really interesting because the the relationship between authors and illustrators differs vastly depending on the pairing so sometimes um, authors and illustrators never meet each other never talk to each other Um, I had written the text Thames and Hudson had said they wanted to publish it so they said you go away and research illustrators and we'll go away and uh, and research illustrators and we'll pool ideas and I found Katie in um, the Bologna Children's Book Fair catalogue the Bologna festival happens every year for children's book selling in Italy or most years yes. <laughs> it happens and um and she was highlighted as an up-and-coming illustrator she's just finished doing her degree I love to work so I emailed her and said can we chat oh, wow. and it, so it happened very organically it was very nice and we had coffee um and she did a sample illustration of Franklin Luna which made me cry buckets because it was just beautiful um and yeah we I didn't want to be prescriptive in telling her you know what to draw or how people should look I let her choose you know what color Franklin should be I think it's it says in the text that Una's hair is red but pretty much everything else she had control over I did ask to have um one of the characters of a wheelchair user and there were a few things like that but mostly it was just her going away and doing it um, and then once she had done the draft illustrations we came together with our publisher and worked out what worked and what didn't now that she had drawn things because you don't want to say everything twice in the words and the text in the words and the illustrations rather so I removed some things from the text that she had illustrated to streamline everything so in that respect we worked together but it was always separately then come together as opposed to being in each other's spaces all the time yeah it's a beautiful teaming it's just that 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 the whole thing works beautifully and then of course you went on to write two more books after the, the flying bookshop yeah Yes. Yeah, so the second one is where Franklin and Luna go to the moon. That's in the title. Franklin is looking for his family. Something I love doing events with kids is that in the story, Franklin's looking for his family. He's looking everywhere. And I always say to the kids, where do you think his family could be? And we come up with a list together. It's all that volcano, forest, the sea. None of them ever guess the moon, even though it's in the title. Like, I love it. It makes me every time. I'm like holding the book in front of them. Where do you think the dragons live? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the final one is Franklin and Luna and the Book of Fairy Tales. 
um, where they get lost inside a book of fairy tales and they have to race through to the end of the book in order to get out again. So that was quite meta and fun to do. And I loved Katie drawing the book within the book, the book. which was yeah, was really really great. Yeah, um, and got to play around with fairy tale stereotypes. Have three little pigs who are architects, and that's their job. And and the wolf who is now a vegetarian. Thank you very much, and does yoga. But in the background, you can still see him terrorizing a pig. Yes. <laughs> haven't repented that much. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed doing that series, and hope I hope to do more um, picture books in the future too. And not yeah. necessarily Frank ones. I don't know. Never say never, but definitely other picture books. Other picture books. Yeah. Okay. So you did touch on earlier saying that you're because I was going to ask you about this. Being a poet, did that feed into writing a PB, or was it the fact that you're a short story writer that was that informed your picture book writing more? Which do you think? had the more influence on that process of writing I think, I think everything informs everything else which I know is not a very helpful answer but I think poetry writing influences my short stories in the sense that because poetry is so sparse and you have to be so concise it makes my other writing more concise it also I think informs the way that I write fiction in general probably in a more lyrical poetic way because whenever I'm writing and editing I read things out loud um because I think the way that things sound is really important obviously it's crucial for children's books like the way that it sounds and the Franklin books they do rhyme but not all the time no I, I, I love the way you do that that's really refreshing yes. it's Thank got you. a really refreshing and interesting rhythm yes it's, some of the rhyme is tight and then it loosens up and you sort of breathe and then it comes yeah. back in again. And that's a really interesting technique. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Thank you. Because I, that's, it's got mixed reception, that, because I've seen, I try not to look at reviews, but some, some people who really like that and then some parents who are confused as to why there isn't a strict rhyming scheme. But from my point of view, I, I love playing with rhymes and I think it's really interesting but if there's always a fixed rhyming pattern of like the dum the dum the dum the dum I worry that you just slip into that rhythm and then stop paying attention to the words as much mm -hmm. because you can guess what the next rhyme is going to be if it's room room whatever like it's, it's not as exciting so if you can change how the rhyme works while still keeping the rhyme in there I think it's funnier for children. Um, it's also harder for adults because it comes a bit tongue-twisty. There is a bit in the middle of Franklin and Luna Go to the Moon where there is a whole page of rhyme that when I do the readings, I ask kids to take a deep breath with me and I do it all in one breath. Um, I was going to do it now, but I've probably forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only one I still know it. Yeah. Um, but uh, there... Yeah, so to have rhymes, maybe not just at the end of the lines, but in the middle of them and really mix that together. So uh, I think I think probably both short stories and poetry had an influence on writing the the picture books because they are, in essence, both a long poem and a short story yes. in themselves. Yeah. 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 So poetry, uh, uh, where did you, where did your love of poetry begin? Oh, um probably tied in with my love of fairy tales because the the roll dolls revolting rhymes was a rhyme too that that's a, short, uh, uh, a long poem and i guess a short story because it's the retelling of a fairy tale um, but i love those compendiums of children's literature i used to have a couple of those um 
and I think I don't know it was just it was more of fostering a love of reading in general because mm -hmm. I was born with um EEC syndrome I spent a load of my childhood in in hospital um I had dozens and dozens of operations and I had I, I really like the sound of words because there were times when I couldn't hold books because my hands were bandaged. So I used to be able to buy or get from the library sets of books that came with cassette tapes. That used to be a thing, not anymore, but it used to be a thing. So I would read the book, then listen to the cassette tape or vice versa, depending on whether or not I was uh, wearing bandages at the time. And maybe that's why I love the sound of words and therefore that would lend itself to poetry quite a lot because that's all about the sounds of, of words. Um, and then I started writing poetry myself. It's the earliest thing that I, I wrote. I, I can't remember a time when I didn't write it, which sounds quite pretentious, sorry. But <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, my, <laughs> and my first poem was published when I was 11. Um, in uh, a national newspaper and then I wrote loads of really you know emo angsty poetry as a teenager as we all do uh, and then started writing poetry more seriously in my early 20s and started submitting to literary journals competitions won awards and then started putting together collections so it happened really slowly over a huge period of time but it's the thing that I have probably the most emotional attachment to. Mm -hmm. um, the Girl Aquarium is absolutely extraordinary. I'll just hold it up here. And when we do the edit, we'll put, we'll put a clearer image of it. But um, uh, there you, can you read for us, Jen? Because yeah. I have heard you read this and I absolutely adore it. And it's one of my favourite poems in this. It's called Netted. But, it, but what I love is that you read it with a Geordie accent. And that's something that in Australia we don't get to hear very often. And uh, it, yeah. just, it just adds that extra bit of lyricism to the whole experience of hearing this beautiful, beautiful poem. And if you could put, us in, it, put this poem into some kind of, kind of context for us too, um, that would be really helpful. Sure. So The Girl Aquarium is a collection of poems about girlhood and bodies and the observation of bodies as a teenage girl feeling under scrutiny and linking that with disabled bodies and the history of the freak show. So it's, it's, it's all about observation and othering, I, I think, and, and tying that in with, with folklore and also discussing queerness because I, I am a queer person. Um, and this particular poem, Nested, is, uh, is inspired by, um, I, I feel like I'm being quite cliche, it's very autobiographical, um, uh, of being you know, in a relationship with a woman and that being really frowned upon and, and living in this bubble of, of happiness and secrecy, but also the fear of being caught. Um, so this poem is in Geordie, as you say, I grew up in the northeast of England and um, technically I'm a Mackham because I'm from Sunderland. That probably doesn't really mean much to most people, but it's a very important distinction, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like territory-wise. But my accent is Geordie because my mum's family were more from Newcastle side. So um, I had a Geordie accent, which I have lost, sadly, over time has left. But I do uh, find myself putting it on like a costume when I go back home um, as a, I don't know, sense of, pride but also fear you want to fit in you know I'm like, okay right I must put my 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 um 
accent of my youth back on. I lived there until I was 18 and all my family still lived there. So I'm the only person who has left and been a traitor and lost my accent. Um, so this is in Geordie and there's only about six poems in the whole collection that are in Geordie. I don't want to scare anybody by thinking that um, they're not going to understand these poems. There's only six of them. The rest are just in uh, air quotes, normal. <laughs> normal. Um, so yeah, this one is about the fear of being caught in a relationship with someone that people think you shouldn't be in a relationship with. And it's called Nedid. And then the court were I shouting like they would radio. Me hair all up in their fists like a cloud. It's long now. Down to my navel, because then all the black is like a cave, what I can sit in, what I can sing in. With voices hiding in all the corners, like arm radio too. And then the court where me and Caitlin, we was dancing our way in. Fairgrounds in my eyes, blazing out like dancing lions, and me stomach is thinking jellyfish, I'll zip zapping around. And then the court were when we was whispering and their fingers got me mouth. The hiccups of the ocean all dripping down with blouse and the sounds was ganning manic like we was trapped underground. And then the court were said we was danger. Said our queer souls was a well. Looking at us like we're fishes what swam but should have drowned yet. I think we saw the lighthouse and I clinked to Caitlin's arm. Our voices singing from all the corners like with mermaids in the dark. Okay, I've teared up. <laughs> Sorry. It's just Sorry. beautiful. It's just so, so moving. Have you thought about writing um, songs? No, people have said that to me before, and I think maybe it's because I would love to be able to sing and I'm crap. <laughs> like, if, if I wrote the songs, I would want to sing them and no one needs to hear that. <laughs> How many skills do you want? <laughs> <laughs> I do know um, other writers, friends of mine, like Kirsty Logan, she writes wonderful uh, short stories. And if anyone has read my short stories and liked them, you'll love her work too. They're very mythical. She writes about fairy tales. And she has worked with songwriters before creating um, beautiful music. Um, if anyone wants to Google a series of songs called, I think it's called Lord Fox which is a series of folklore-based songs that she wrote but didn't sing because, like me, she also cannot sing. Um, maybe she did sing some of them. Maybe I'm doing her a disservice. Anyway, she worked with other people and it was a beautiful project. Yeah. Your imagination is so incredibly wild. And and I just think that if you put that to music, um, oh, wow, what a marriage that would be. Somebody on the back of this book says... Um, uh, I'm impressed with the boldness, close to wildness of Jen Campbell's imagination. Um, and yeah, and that, 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 that's that wildness in your, in your writing. It's just, um, it's so mesmerising. I just love it. Um, fangirl moment. Over here, going back to being an interviewer, I've got so <laughs> I just checked the time again because I'm enjoying this so much. Oh, we've, okay, we're up for an hour. Jen, I really, really want to end on, you've got a new book coming out and it's so it exciting um, because, you know, just to be interviewing someone who happens to have a new book coming out, we didn't orchestrate it this way. But uh, so this book is... Um, it's going to be amazing. I've, of course, got my, my copy on, on order. And as we were talking about off air, it does have a ribbon and foil. <laughs> 
advanced copy on show here. So the sister who ate her brothers, and I'm just going to read um, the little press release because it covers it really beautifully. And then, Jen, I'm going to ask you to read the forward because I think that's uh, really amazing. So drawing on her fascination with an extensive knowledge of fairy tale history, Jen Campbell lends a modern and inclusive edge to 14 terrifyingly gruesome stories from around the world, including a horrifying haunted house in Nigeria, a sister in Korea who longs to eat her family, and a boy who tricks a troll in Norway, all narrated by someone who's trying to lure the reader into the deep dark forest. Campbell has stripped away the gender stereotyping and twee endings that we often associate with classic fairy tales and has added queer characters and positive representation of disability and disfigurement to create thoroughly modern grisly stories for the younger generation. Um, I read the, I was very lucky to have a PDF of the book and um, have started reading and the first story <laughs> The actual sister who ate her brothers is just extraordinary, isn't it? And it goes back to what you were saying about original fairy tales. Often they just end, like they just end yeah. and there's no, there's no moral that comes through. There's no comeuppance. There's just this ending. And I, the sister who ate her brothers is kind of like that, you know, um, to me anyway. That's how, how I understood it. It was just like, yeah, it's all over. <laughs> You're right, they do end quite abruptly and uh, yeah, historically sometimes they would come with morals at the end but they'd be really questionable ones. So at the end yes. is uh, a version of Sleeping Beauty where she's essentially sexually assaulted when she's asleep because she wakes up giving birth to, to, to a child. The moral at the end of that one is and um, she's not called Sleeping Beauty in that one um, but I think Princess Deladine she had learned that even when asleep one can still be struck by luck and I'm like I don't think that was the moral of the film, actually <laughs> I think we need to talk about that because I don't think that no so yeah there are no um, that there aren't really morals to these tales um, but I did want to change the uh, it, as it says in the press release the, the implications of, of having characters in here with disfigurement disabilities so none of those things in here are teaching bad morals you know the if you're bad you will be disabled like <laughs> we leave that far far behind but it is it, it does have uh, we're celebrating a princess who uh, has hair loss so we have a bald princess in here we've got a deaf man who falls in love with a man and um spoilers i don't know spoilers <laughs> um and also i'm really fascinated by the myth of segna which is an inuit myth about um a young princess who doesn't want to marry anyone that her father wants her to marry. So he throws her out to sea and she holds on to his ship uh, and he gets an axe and he cuts off all of her fingers. So obviously, <laughs> tale that I, I identify with in a mythological sense. And so she falls into the water and all of her fingers morph into sea creatures and she becomes the goddess of the deep. So he thinks she's, he's punishing her for doing something wrong, but she's not punished and she grows up to be this really powerful person. Um, so I wanted to embrace embrace that in these stories. Um, but yeah, you're right. They end quite abruptly and often quite in a grisly fashion. Grisly. Um, <laughs> it's very satisfying. Grisly. <laughs> yes. yeah. No, uh, it's really gorgeous. So if you could read us the forward, that would be really nice to hear it in your voice. I can. And for anyone who's watching would be... Uh, 
the video, there are eyeballs that Adam D'Souza, who's in the <laughs> all around the borders, which is really, really delightful. The Lots artwork is beautiful, isn't it, too? The artwork is... I think um, there's uh, 30 colour plates in here, which is lovely. Um, yes. Yeah, so. Adam D'Souza. Adam D'Souza yeah. is a um, Canadian comic artist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He is, and he, his work feels... Uh, it's just very noir. I like it. And if anyone has read Emily Carroll's graphic novels, I would say their work is quite quite similar. He has a great colour palette. Um, and, yeah, I really, really love the work that he's done in this book. So this is the, the introduction. Hello, reader. I can see you hovering outside in the dark forest. Come inside where it's warm. That's it. Just step over the threshold and close the door behind you. That's better, isn't it? I suppose I should introduce myself. Uh, I'm here to tell you stories. I adore stories, particularly the gruesome ones. There was a time long ago when these brilliant, horrible tales were known far and wide, but then people changed them. They gave them happily ever afters when nothing really awful happened and, well, a lot of them became boring. So I want to revive those tales of old, the stories where things hide in the dark, the stories where people eat each other, the stories where there are holes in the centre of the earth with terrible things inside. I'm going to tell you some of my favourite tales. I hope you like them. I hope they please you. (laughs) You look a little worried. Don't be. Oh, what, you say the door has locked itself behind you? Yes, it has a nasty habit of doing that. Now, come and sit down and listen to what I have to say. I'm sure once the stories are over, you'll be able to leave again. (laughs) I said sit. (laughs) That's better. Are you comfortable? I hope not. Oh, we're going to have such fun. <laughs> I love me a horrible narrator. <laughs> such a reassuring in, uh, entry into the book. So reassuring. So, yeah, this book is, it's, it's, uh, we're saying 8 plus, so 8, 12, just because it is a little bit scary. Um, but I have been reading it over FaceTime to my niece and nephew. We've been doing story a night. And she is five and he is eight because she has to be involved, obviously. He can't have something that she's not involved in. And she's been fine with it. So I really do think it depends on the individual child what their scare threshold is. But, yeah, primarily middle grade, eight to 12, 13. But I'm hoping that adults will really enjoy it too because the kind of storytelling that I still really enjoy. Oh, it's absolutely a book for adults. Absolutely, for sure. And and um, we can it's available for pre-order, so that's... That's wonderful, yeah, at lots and lots of different outlets so too. So I'll put the link to that down below. Are you going to have some sort of online launch for it? Um, I need to organise that because, as we said, as I said before, time means nothing and I've just remembered it's three weeks until the book is coming out. So, yeah, <laughs> there will be some kind of online event that I will be doing and I do also run a YouTube channel where I talk about books and I have some videos on there about this particular title and there will be other books um the other videos about the book coming up where i do some some readings and things like that there'll definitely be content surrounding that online yeah it's uh, it's always such an exciting time and such a beautiful production so congratulations jen my, my so final much. question here as it is getting late is um what next i mean you have a book coming out. 
but but I but you know the work for that's all done. So are you working on something new? I'm working on a few different things. I am working on a book that I feel like may be in the works for several years. It's one of those books that I started and thought, okay, yes, I can write this now. And then the more I've I've done, the more I realise I think it's going to be a longer form thing. So it's a non-fiction book about fairy tales and storytelling, but linking that with memoir and about growing up um, as as a disabled child and the stories that we tell ourselves when we're trying to find answers to things. So I think that's probably going to take a, a few, a fair few years, I reckon, to write. I have written another picture book um, and I don't know when that will be uh, released. Um, and I'm writing some more poetry and I would like to do another fairy tale book like The Sister Who Ate Her Brothers, um, collecting possibly different versions of famous fairy tales so as you mentioned I have a series on my channel where I talk about fairy tales around the world so Snow White in, in different cultures and how those stories are different I would maybe like to pick my favorite non-western version of um of particular fairy tales and have yeah, a collection can, like yeah. that so Something you should see. say that the Snow White um the um Saya Bidisari Bidisari is my yeah. favorite I think I love that it's gorgeous. It's so bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, um, a fairy tale where a woman's life depends or is, is directly linked with the life of a fish, which happens quite a lot, actually, in old fairy tales. And in Yershen, which is an old version um, of, of what later became Cinderella, instead of a fairy godmother, she had a magical fish that she would talk to. Um, so in Sayyab Adasari, she has a fish that she keeps in a necklace, and if the fish dies, she dies. And the stepmother, well, the mother, actually, I think it's a stepmother in this case. She um, is very jealous of um, of this this beautiful woman, and she learns about the fish. So she takes the fish and puts it in a necklace and keeps it out of water, which means that the Abedasari falls into a um, into a coma. Um, and it has this hilarious scene in where she's revived slightly for a while in order to get help, where the queen is in a bath and the locket opens and the fish falls into the water and suddenly is alive again. So Vidisari wakes up out of her coma and is able to grab someone and say, you must save me, the queen has stolen my fish. And then she goes back to sleep and this poor man is like, sorry, I don't understand what the queen has a fish. It's really ridiculous. Um, and there's also a version of Hansel and Gretel that uh, Giamatita Basile wrote. So it's an Italian version, it is a Western version. Um, in the 1600s, uh, where it starts, the Hansel and Gretel, we know, you know, brother and sister, they go into the forest and they encounter a, a witch who lives in the woods, but then they escape, and and the Gretel version, who's called Ninella, she turns into a pirate, and she steals a pirate ship, and she goes out to sea, and I'm like, sorry, this, this wasn't in the <laughs> other version. So there are there's some really fascinating oh, long-form fairy tales that just keep going and going and going. The opposite of the abrupt ones that just Yes. <laughs> some of them don't know where to stop yeah it was interesting because there's a little scene i don't know if you noticed in harry potter where um slughorn refers to the fish that lily potter gave him in the bowl and he talks about it was the most beautiful piece of magic and he had this bowl with francis the fish on his desk for for years and the day that lily died the fish died harry potter's mother i don't remember that bit yeah i don't remember yeah, the, the day that Harry Potter's mother died was the day that her fish that she'd gifted him also died. So I wonder, you know, 
myths, folklore, legend, they're in the DNA, whether JK had picked that up subconsciously as a child through a fairy tale or whether it was mm. in her research. Um, it's, all, it's all really interesting. Jen, this yeah. has been amazing. I've enjoyed every minute of this conversation. Um, could have gone on for ages. Uh, love having discovered you. So excited about sharing you and your work in the Duck Pond. I know everyone's going to be... <laughs> Uh, when when they uh, get all these links and start to really delve into your world because it is in, it's incredibly informative and rich and um, wild. <laughs> You're lovely. Thank you. This is really really fun. I have very much enjoyed myself. Oh good. I, I buy a cat. It's background. Oh, yes. He, managed <laughs> he usually comes in at some point. But, yeah, um, it's just been fantastic. You have a beautiful day because it's only morning over there. and Thank you. Um, and, we, and we will, I'm sure we'll talk again. Otherwise, I will definitely see you on YouTube and on the podcast too. Yeah. Yes, yes, podcast. I have a podcast which is on hiatus at the moment, but I'm hoping to relaunch that in the not-too-distant future. Great. And good luck with the new book. I know it's going to do Thank really, really well. I'm really excited Thank for you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. See you later, Jen. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Thanks for hanging out with me today. If you want more ducky goodness, pop over to the website www.girlandduck.com or you can find me on Instagram at Jen E. Storer. J-E-N-E-S-T-O-R-E-R. Bye for now.